Good to be with you guys this morning. Kids, fifth grade and under, this is your invitation to make your way downstairs. If you got a tag as you came in, parents, if you're new with us, know that your kids will be well cared for down there. They'll be kept healthy and safe and clean, and they're going to have a great time in worship. The rest of us are going to begin this morning by opening up our Bibles to the second book, Exodus. We're going to begin in chapter one. I got to meet a few new families this morning. If I didn't get to meet you, I hope I get to meet you at the end, but my name is Brandon Dickerson. I have the privilege of serving as the associate pastor here, and occasionally they let me get up here and open God's Word, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to continue in the story of the Israelite nation as told in our Old, Test- Old Testament. And one thing that I want to remind you of is that whatever we read in the Old Testament is a, a historical account. These aren't made-up stories. I remember as a kid, and I I would hear these stories told, and and they just didn't sound real to me. But everything that we read in our Bibles is real, did actually happen. And so this morning, we're going to look at this historical account of the Israelite nation. Last week, Dave opened up and he shared with us about Joseph and the historical account of how God used Joseph to save Egypt to save the nations that were around Egypt, and even to save Joseph's own family from a seven-year famine that would have certainly brought destruction on everybody in what was the known world at that time. And at the end of Genesis, we see Joseph's family, including his father Jacob, whom God had renamed Israel, all of Joseph's 11 brothers and all of their families had come into Egypt to settle. And about this time, there are only around 70 of them. Now remember that this is the people through Abraham whom God had said, I am going to make you into a great nation. And at this point in time in history, they don't really resemble a great nation. They resemble more of a large family, right? Just about 70 of them coming to settle in Egypt. And this weekend, we're going to be looking here in Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to be going all the way through chapter 12. The main narrative begins hundreds of years after Genesis ends and Jacob's family has moved into the land of Egypt. Notice verse 6 and 7. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And so within this span of a few hundred years, this family of 70 began to resemble the nation that God said that it would, just as God had promised Abraham. In fact, it was literally a nation that grew up within another nation. They lived in the land of Egypt, but they were not Egyptians. They were Israelites. They were the Hebrew people. Egypt was not their home, even though by this time in their history, Every Israelite had been born in Egypt, but it was not their home. The land is filled with them, and they're prospering. They're living in peace with the native people, with the Egyptians. But as we will see, things are going to take a very sharp turn for them, and life is going to become very difficult for God's people. Look at verse 8. Now, this is only eight verses in Exodus. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, that's an important statement, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. This new king had forgotten what it was that God had done through Joseph to save 
the Egyptians and the surrounding nations from the destruction that was brought on by the famine. He had forgotten that this nation had become wealthy only through God's wisdom given to Joseph and the discernment that he had given Joseph in setting Egypt up as the sole source of food for the known world at that time. It's the reason that Egypt is so wealthy at this point. So he had forgotten all this and he looks around him and he sees this nation that has grown up within his own nation and he becomes afraid. He becomes afraid that if left unchecked, that these people would grow more powerful than his own people and then when war broke out, they would fight against them and he would lose the seat of power that he has. Look at verses 11 and 14, the result of his fear. So they put slave masters over them, over the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labor. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And so the Israelites go from being guests in this land to being slaves. Verse 12 says the Egyptians went from being welcoming hosts to dreading to even fearing the Israelite people because they had been told by the governing authority that if they allowed this group of people to continue to prosper the way that they were, that it would mean their own destruction. And so the Israelites became obnoxious to the Egyptians. But in spite of the oppression, in spite of the hard labor, in spite of the slavery, they do continue growing. They do continue prospering. And it's important for us to note that that is a direct result of God growing this nation. No other nation would, would grow under those circumstances, but they continue to do so. But out of persistent fear, the king decides that the only way to stop their spread is to issue an order that all male babies born to Hebrew women were to be killed. This is nothing less than a genocidal order. It, it will result in the death of half the new population of the Hebrew people. And over time, what happens when only females are allowed to survive is the people themselves will die off. And so the, the king has issued an order that is nothing less than complete genocide. And this is the environment into which Moses is born in Exodus chapter two. All of that has happened in Exodus chapter one. Let's take a break, take a breath real quick. A lot has happened in chapter one, right? And then we get to Moses who is born into this genocidal, hate-filled slavery that God's people is enduring. And it's through Moses that we're going to begin to see God's plan for the rescue of his people from the heavy hand of the Egyptians. That's the first point for you this morning on your outline, that God has always had a rescue plan. God has always had a rescue plan. He knew that his people would find themselves in this situation. In fact, if you read Genesis chapter 50, then you also knew that God's people would find themselves in this situation. From Egypt at the end of his life, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. Now this is 350 or so years before this Exodus chapter one narrative begins. Joseph says, I'm about to die. 
But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had revealed to Joseph that at some point in time in the history of these people, they were going to need rescue. God not only had a plan for the rescue of his chosen people those thousands of years ago, but he has a plan to rescue his chosen people today, you and me. And of course, we know that that plan involved Jesus, and we're going to talk more about that plan when we get to Exodus chapter 12. But God's plan is even bigger than that as he continues day after day, moment after moment, to draw us out of our past lives of slavery in which we once lived. Paul writes in Galatians, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, then you are no longer a slave. A slave to what? Well, Paul says it's a slave to all of those little g-gods that we gave our affections to. Those passions and those desires and those dreams and those ambitions and even those people who seem to hold all the power over us. Those things to which we gave our lives before we knew that there was something much more valuable that deserved our affection and that deserved our attention and that deserved our worship. And we know that even while we are saved, even though we have accepted God's ultimate plan of rescue through Jesus Christ, that there are still pieces of that past that hold on to us. That there are still some of those little G-gods that we have a hard time releasing and letting go. They still try to pull us back and entangle us in things that seem to distance us from our Father or make us feel like we are distanced from our Father. And you need to know that even in this, God still has a rescue plan for you. The rescue plan doesn't end with salvation. It begins with salvation. And every day that comes after that, He's still working in you, even if it feels like progress is slow and arduous. And in saying goodbye to our past, we get frustrated. We get frustrated when it seems like things aren't moving as quickly as we thought they would. God, God, why am I not further along in this right now? Why do I still find myself caught up in those same old habits and hang-ups as I always did? Moses certainly got frustrated. He certainly wanted things to move faster, as we'll see beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2. Now, let's first off note that Moses was not raised as the other Hebrews were raised. He's born in the middle of this edict that all male babies born to Hebrew women are to be thrown into the river and drowned. Moses' mother, though, refuses to comply, and for that, she gets a mention in the Hall of Faith in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 11. When the author writes, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is written thousands of years after this happened. But the author is looking back at what she did in order to save this child from this genocidal order that had come from the king. And in fact, when she could hide him no longer, she didn't just toss him into the river. 
She placed him in a basket and she floats him down the river, all the while watching to see what was going to happen. I've no doubt that if it didn't look like rescue was coming for Moses, she'd have pulled him back out of that river. And she'd have tried to hide him as long as she possibly could. But rescue does come for Moses. In fact, it comes from an unlikely place. As he floats down the river, he is spotted by none other than Pharaoh's own daughter. The very king who had issued the edict to have all male babies born to Hebrew women killed pulls Moses out of the water because she has pity on him knowing that he's a Hebrew baby. Knowing that he's a Hebrew baby. And what does she do? She sends for one of the Hebrew women to nurse him. And in God's providence, who gets brought to her? Moses' own mother. And so Moses, who had cast her son into the river, gets to come and nurse her own child. And get this, she gets paid for it. Can you imagine women getting paid to nurse your children? That's exactly what happens in God's providence that she is paid by the royal family out of royal funds to nurse her own child, knowing that he has been saved. And the result is that Moses is not raised as a Hebrew slave, but as Egyptian royalty. He's raised as an adopted grandchild of the king himself. He had everything that the world at that time could offer. And even still, something about the way his Hebrew brothers and sisters are being treated doesn't sit quite right with him. And in a moment of frustration, seeing one of the Hebrew slaves being beaten by an Egyptian, he lashes out and he murders the Egyptian. When his crime is discovered, he flees Egypt, and it will be 40 years living in the wilderness before he is able to set foot back into the only land that he ever knew as his home. But before that happens, he will have a face-to-face encounter with God, Exodus chapter 3. Many of us know this part of the story. It's the part of the story that we most often learn as children. It's the part of the story that I learned as a child. After 40 years of living as a shepherd in exile, Moses encounters God at a bush that appears to be on fire but is not burning up. And it's in this place that God reveals to Moses the plan of rescue that he has for his people. In fact, Moses himself has become God's chosen agent through which his people will be rescued. Now, I want to talk for a moment about Moses' qualifications to be God's chosen agent of rescue for his people. Moses is born into slavery. He's born in the midst of genocide. We know from later on that he has some kind of speech impediment that had, had lowered his self-esteem. He didn't feel like he could communicate clearly. Not only that, he, he's a murderer, He's murdered another man. And yet this is whom God has called to be his chosen agent. This is the one who who God is sending to the king to, to cry the rescue of his people. There's nothing in his background that says that this should have been the man that was sent. And yet God calls him anyway. Moses' moment with God will change the trajectory of his Life. It's that second point for us. That within your own rescue story, you're going to have these burning bush 
moments. These moments where you encounter God. And I'm not talking about these unbelievable encounters where God descends out of the cloud and says, Brandon, here's what I want you to do. Don't, don't you wish that God did that sometimes? But I'm not, I'm not talking about those kinds of encounters. I'm talking about those seemingly small moments where God reveals little bits to you about what's going to happen next or about what you are to do next. I've had people ask that question of me, and it's a valid question. When you, when you read the Old Testament and you read how God has revealed himself to his people, then the natural question that comes is, why doesn't God show himself to us in the same way he did then? If God would show himself to me in that way, then I would believe in who he is, that I would believe that he's real. But Hebrews 1.1 answers that question for us. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, sometimes through burning bushes. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. If you are sitting in this room, and, and I assume that you are, it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty safe assumption, then God has revealed himself to you through his son and through his word as we have opened it up together. That perhaps for you, this is your burning bush moment. The moment when you first discovered God and the plan of salvation that he has for you. I had a conversation a month or two ago with a friend of mine who struggles with this idea of belief. He struggles with knowing that God is there. And he says, why, why doesn't he just open the door for me to, to, to know these things? And I said, my friend, God has opened the door for you hundreds of times. That every time you walk in this building and you hear his word opened, you've heard the gospel over and over and over again. This right now is an open door for you. As we speak, God has opened the door for you to believe. This is your burning bush moment. Or maybe you discovered him long ago. And the reality is that the life of a Christian is marked by many such moments over the course of a lifetime. It starts with God's call for you to believe and to say goodbye to your past, that life that you used to live following those little G-gods. And when you finally say yes, then God reveals himself to you over and over and over again, imploring with you and pleading with you to continue letting go of those things to continue saying goodbye to those things that have taken priority over him. It's those moments when you choose with God's help to let go of the thing in that season of your life that has been getting in the way of your full surrender. I would argue that for us as Christians, for the church, the last three months have certainly been one of those moments for all of us. A moment of awakening as we've seen our normal lives completely upended and irrevocably changed. I was a sophomore in high school when 9-11 happened. And at that very moment, we know that the world changed. And at that moment, we began talking about a pre-9-11 and a post-9-11 world. And now what are we doing? We're talking about a pre-COVID and a post-COVID world. My nine-year-old son is already beginning to talk about what life was like before this happened. Because he recognizes, even at his age, that there is a point in time where things have completely shifted, where our lives look different. And the question that we have is, 
What is God calling you? What is he calling you to in this season of your life when perhaps everything you once held dear has been knocked off what you thought was a firm foundation? I can tell you what it's calling me to. A greater love for the people around me and a deeper understanding of just how much Satan has deceived this world into believing that God is not in control. How often do we believe that it's complete chaos around us? It's not chaos. God is in control of it. I was telling Amanda the other day of just how weary I get when I take even the smallest glance at social media or read the news. It's not even, it used to be anger. It's not even anger anymore. It's just weariness brought on by the sheer enormity of the challenge. And I know that I'm not the only one who feels that way. God has called you and me to love him above all else, and he's called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's our command. Those are the two greatest commandments in all of Scripture. Love God and love people. That's what he's calling us to. He was calling us to that long before this happened, but now he's especially calling us to that. But we know that even that challenge seems Daunting because we find it so difficult sometimes to love people who are on the opposite side of the aisle. And the reason is that we're forgetting who the enemy really is. The enemy is not those people on the other side. They are victims of the deception they've bought into the lie that Satan has been spinning to this world from the beginning. And they are victims of that. And if we can understand that those people are victims, then it informs us in how we think about them and how we deal with them. Not as enemies, but as people that I want to see accept this truth. I want to see them have that moment for themselves, that they would accept Jesus Christ. Moses was challenged by the instruction that God gave him in front of that burning bush. God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and to be his voice. In spite of his speech impediment, in spite of his sin in his past, God tells him to go and demand the release of his people. How did Moses respond? Who am I, God? Moses knew all these things about himself. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And I want you to look at the five words with which God responds to Moses in verse 12. When God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now that should have been all that Moses needed. For some reason, Moses would need more reassurance than that, as you will read, but I assure you that that is all the assurance that we need. It's the next point on your outline. That God will equip you for what lies ahead. And he does that first and foremost by promising to go with you wherever he commands you to go. No matter what environment that is, no matter how hostile it is, no matter how difficult it is, God says, I'm going to go with you. And it's God who gives you the strength to say goodbye to the past, who gives you the tools to build a new and better future, and who stands beside you in every battle that is fought and won, and even in those battles that seem to be lost, God is fighting beside you. He's not just fighting beside you, he's carrying the battle. 
Don't ever believe that you're the one carrying the battle. That is God doing that. Remember those principles that Dave has been laying out for us throughout this series. That first, obedience to God brings the answers that we seek. God was calling Moses to single-minded, first-time obedience. He just said, go. Second, there's often nothing about our situation that will give us faith to act. We talked about there, there was nothing about Moses' situation. One speech-challenged man against the king of the, the empire of the world. Nobody in their right mind would take those odds. But the third principle puts it all together for us. The answer to every question God will provide. I will be with you. In fact, in Moses' case, God provides his brother Aaron to go with him and do the talking. And so Moses goes. He goes to the elders of his own people and he tells them God's plan. And then he goes to the king himself and he demands the release of this nation. And we know as you, as you read ahead that things don't go exactly the way Moses might have supposed they would have gone. They do, however, go exactly the way God knew they would. Even before Moses left that burning bush, God had said to, them, to him, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him, and so I'll stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. God knew that this was going to happen. He knew that this was coming. And chapter 7 through 10 record those very wonders as God unleashes his power among these people. We call them the plagues. And it's through these plagues that God displays his mighty power against a people who thought they had all the power. In every single plague, God is showing that the dead gods of the Egyptians will not come to their rescue. That only he is the one and only true God. God is demonstrating that through every single devastating catastrophe. Even still, Pharaoh would not relent and he would not release the people. And it's then that we come to Exodus chapters 11 and 12. And it's important for us to know that chapters 11 and 12 were part of God's rescue plan all along. The 10th plague wasn't a last ditch effort. It wasn't a plan B for when things didn't go the way that God thought they would. It wasn't simply a final attempt to get the king to agree. It certainly wasn't a bluff. God knew from the beginning that it was going to come to this. In fact, God very much allowed it to come to this in order that we today, sitting in this room, could know that our rescue story is deeply intertwined with the Israelite rescue out of Egypt. That there is a deep connection between my rescue story and your rescue story and the rescue of the, Egypt, of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. God has planned this in order that we might know that. And so let's read together beginning in chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Now, before you think this is too harsh, and, and I understand that when we first approach the Bible and we begin to read, we, we realize that the Bible has a lot of really gritty moments in it. It's not, it's not very pretty at times. 
And sometimes without an, an informed understanding of who God is and, and how he operates, we approach stories like this and we say, why is God being so harsh here? Is this a God of love? How can, I, how can I call this a God of love? But remember that it was the prior Pharaoh who had at first issued the edict that not just the firstborn son, but every son born to the Hebrew women would be killed. But I also don't want you to think that God is issuing some kind of eye for an eye punishment on the Egyptians. That's not the way that God operates. God has a purpose behind this. And even if it's difficult to understand, yes, the purpose is love for his people. What he's doing is setting the scene for something to happen that will ripple through every generation that would come after. Because it's through this 10th plague that God institutes what we call the Passover. Notice God's proclamation that all firstborn sons would die wasn't limited to just the Egyptian people. He said that every firstborn son in the land of Egypt would die, which includes whom? The firstborn sons of his own people. Now think about, in your family, if all of a sudden the firstborn sons of everybody in your family died, how many people would you lose in your family? You would lose a lot. So God says that every firstborn son in Egypt would die, including those of his own people. And so make no mistake that without the Passover, the wails heard from that night would have come not just from the Egyptians, but also from the Hebrews. The crying that was heard in Egypt that night and into the next morning would have been coming from God's own people as well. But God's plan included a way for the firstborn sons of the Israelites to be spared. And in order for them to be spared, a sacrifice would be required. God said they would need a spotless lamb. Through Moses, God instructs each household to take a perfect lamb, and at twilight they were to slaughter it. They were to take the, the blood of that perfect lamb and put it on their door frames. And as God passed through that night, the lives of all the firstborn sons in Egypt were taken except for those who had the blood of the lamb smeared on their door frames. It was through the death of this spotless lamb that rescue would come to the homes of the Hebrew people and it's through the blood on their door frames that they would ultimately be set free from Egypt that they would be released to go. It's our final point. Out of death comes life. So why, why this heavy-handedness of God? Why did he have to go this far? And if he had to go this far, why didn't he just take the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptians and just let the Hebrew people go? Why wouldn't he just pass over the homes of his own people without the requirement of the, this lamb who had to be killed? Well, God was showing his people then and he's showing you and me today that the consequence of sin is death. That the wages of sin is death. If we have ever done anything against God and all of us have done something against God, then the wages of that is death. Had his own people sinned, you bet they had. Even before they left Egypt, they were grumbling 
against Moses and they were grumbling against God because Moses coming in had changed their way of life in a way that had become more difficult for a short time. That in sin, they had rejected God's plan of rescue for them. It is a sin for us to reject God's plan of salvation for us. To reject the rescue plan that God has for us. And so they had rejected this plan. They said, let us just remain here as slaves. How many times? How many times have we said that? Let me just remain where I am, God. Life is fine right now. I seem to have the things that I need. Let me just stay right where I am. But they had rescued, they, they had rejected the plan of rescue and the plan for freedom. And they were inclined to stay right where they are in a foreign land that worshiped foreign gods. And even before the law was given, God was demonstrating what Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But more than this reality is the reality that the Passover, that through the Passover, God was giving us, giving you and me, a glimpse, a foretaste, a shadow of his ultimate rescue plan. He's giving it to the, his own people at that time, a shadow of what he's been planning all along. Do you, do you see the shadow that he's giving, the, the foretaste that he's giving? Let me see if this helps. In John 1.29, John the Baptist, who had come to prepare the way for the Messiah, for the Savior, he looks out and he sees Jesus making his way toward him on the horizon. And what comes out of his mouth? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is our Passover Lamb. Jesus' blood is the blood that we smear on the door frames of our hearts in order that the wrath of God would pass over us and we would be brought out of slavery and into freedom. That we would no longer follow dead, lifeless little G gods, but that we would have the opportunity to follow the big G God. It's out of his death that we have been given life, it's his death that has enabled us to say goodbye to our past. It's out of his death that we are able to let go of those little G gods that we've pursued and to be pursued by the one and only God. It's out of his death that we are no longer slaves to sin, but sons and daughters, heirs of the Father and co-heirs with Christ. It's a Puritan pastor by the name of John Flavel who imaginatively recreates the conversation between God the Father and God the Son before creation. I want you to know that, that just like God had planned all along that the Passover would come to pass, God planned all along that Jesus Christ would be our rescue. It was not a plan B. Before God set the foundations of the earth in place, he knew that it would come to this. And John Flavel records... It's not in the Bible, but, but it gives us a picture of God's love for us before he set the foundations of the earth. When the father says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. 
Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? He's talking about you and me. We've undone ourselves. And the son says, my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all of your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand, you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. And the Father says, but son, if you undertake for them, then you must pay the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, then I'll not spare you. And the son says, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it. Just like the crescendo of God's rescue plan for the Hebrew people had been planned all along, God had determined long before he spoke the universe into existence that Jesus Christ would be the crescendo of your and my rescue story. The climax where all that God has been planning from the beginning is made perfectly clear to us. It's no longer a shadow. It's no longer a foretaste. It's right there. This was the plan that the Father had all along. The Father always knew it would come to this. The Son always knew it would come to this. The Holy Spirit always knew that it would come to this. And now you know that it had to come to this in order for you to say goodbye to your old ways of doing things, your old way of looking at the world, your old way of living for yourself and following little g-gods. God has revealed himself to you today. Today is your burning bush moment. You, you have heard God's rescue story for you proclaimed. And so the question is, what are you going to do with it? Do you reject it? Or do you say, yes, God. Yes, I'll let go of all of those things and I will follow you. I choose to follow you. Let today be your burning bush moment. Let it be the moment that you encounter God. Through his word, God has revealed himself to you, whether you're a Christian who has given yourself back over to your past and let those old habits and hangups come back in, or whether you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God is speaking to you right now through his word. And so the challenge is say goodbye to your past and say yes to what God has for you in the future. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this historical account. It's not a made-up story. It's the account of how you raised up a people, not a people who were qualified to be your representatives to the world, but a people whom you chose to be your representatives to the world. And Lord, as we recount their story, we are reminded of just how connected we are 
to the Israelites. That Lord, every one of us in this room have asked to remain where we are. We've all asked to remain in our lives of slavery because it's all that we've ever known and we can't yet see that there is something so much greater on the horizon. But for those who have said yes to you, who have accepted your ultimate plan of rescue, we know that on this side of that decision, there's freedom. And so Father, for those in this room who don't yet know that and are having trouble seeing it, draw them to you. Give them even a taste, a glimpse of what can be, of what has been made possible through Jesus Christ, that they would say yes. And Lord, for those who have been following you for some time but are frustrated by how slow the progress seems to be, encourage them this morning that even in our faults and our failures, we are children of you, heirs of our Father and co-heirs with Christ. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.